So Mark 8.27 through 9.32 is one of those portions. And one of the reasons why you know that is because there's, what, there's a literary device called an inclusio. Okay? An inclusio. You probably never use that word again in your life. Maybe. I don't know. But an inclusio. An inclusio is a literary device that acts like a couple of brackets or acts like a couple of bookends. And so you know, he says it here and he says it here. That's the, that's the section and um, that's the inclusio and everything in between, everything in between um, gives a flavor, has that flavor to it. Okay? So if you look at Mark chapter 8, verse 27... Here's what you read. Um, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now jump over to chapter 9. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So there's the inclusio. He starts with talking about his death, or Mark says, puts that there, and then puts it here. And so that's the inclusio. So this whole thing is going to have something to do with that idea of dying. And, and in this section, Mark emphasizes the characteristics of Messiah and everybody that follows him. All right? That's the thrust of this. Who is this Messiah, and what, are the, what is he like, and what are his followers like? Okay? And Marx wants us to understand the radical nature of this Messiah, the radical nature of his people, the radical nature of his authority. And in this section, God turns the world upside, or God turns everything upside down. It's just the exact opposite of what you'd think would be true of this Messiah, this king, and his followers. He just turns it upside down, which is what God always does. And we always seem to be surprised by that. Um, So here's the first thing. Verses 27 through 33. So if we don't get through all of this, you know, you carry on. All right, verses 27 through 33 is the first section of this, and it talks about Jesus as the Messiah, but what kind? So what do we find? We find that Jesus went with his disciples, and he says to them, who do people say that I am? And they recognized him. The disciples recognized Jesus, this teacher of theirs, as the Messiah. That is, they recognized him as the anointed one, right? They get it. Peter says, um, uh, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So, you are the Christ. The Christ. You know, Jesus Christ, that's not like his last name, like if... You wrote Jesus, you wouldn't put Jesus Christ, first name, last name, on the envelope. 
It's Jesus the Christ. That's the Greek word Christos for the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, which means the anointed one. All right? So Peter says, Jesus says, who do you think I am? Who, what do people say I am? And say, well, you're, you're like one of the prophets. They, they think you're like Elijah. They think you're, you're this. And he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the anointed one. You're the Christ. Now, many don't recognize Jesus that way. They believe him to be John or Elijah or some other prophet. But the disciples have embraced him as the promised one, the one who is supposed to come. They embrace that. They say, he, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the one appointed to deliver Israel. But the, here's the issue. They don't understand the nature of that ruler. They don't understand the nature of his work or the path that he has to follow. Um, he's not going to tread the path of earthly glory, but the path of suffering, rejection, murder, execution, and resurrection. Okay, the anointed one, the one specially chosen by God, the one that was promised is going to follow this path. It's not going to be parades. It's not going to be statues. It's not going to be everything you would expect. So we look at George Washington as the father of our country. You've got Washington schools. You've got Washington streets. You've got You've got statues all over the place for this guy. You've got all of these things going on. Why? Because he's a hero, right? And that's how they're looking at Jesus. He's the hero. He's the guy that's supposed to do these great things. And then Jesus says, well, actually what's going to happen is I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to be killed, right? I'm going to be betrayed. I'm, 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 they're going to treat me badly. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed, but I'll be raised again. And Peter can't accept that. Because what's Peter got in his mind? We think he's got in his mind. Yeah, of course. Parades, statutes, and glory, right? He's going to lead the parade of triumph. This is what the, the chosen one of God is going to do. See, that's what they have in their mind. This is what the chosen ones, this is what the deliverer is going to do. And, and to him, and when Jesus says what he says, this is an absolute scandal to Peter. Absolutely scandalous. Why? How can the chosen one be cursed by God? Okay, anybody hung on a tree, right? Is cursed. So, no, no, no. Jesus, you got it wrong. You, that's, that doesn't make any sense at all, right? You're the chosen one. You're the anointed one. You're the one who's going to be our hero and you're telling us there's not going to be statues. You're, tell, you're talking about shame. You're talking not about being chosen by God. You're talking about being cursed by God. All right? You're cursed. If you're hung on a tree, that doesn't mean you're chosen. It means you're cursed. Do you get the idea here? It's supposed to really cause some dissonance in your mind. Right? It's supposed, and, and it does. I mean, this is, this is, this is hard. And so Peter, Peter kind of tells Jesus, well, no, you got, you got the mission wrong here. And of course, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus rebukes him, as you see there. So Jesus, obviously recognized as the Messiah, has to suffer, has to die, has to be resurrected, and this is all of God. So here's the deal. This is, this is his kingship. The promised king must die and suffer humiliation. Now again, 
This turns everything upside down in our way of thinking. It just doesn't make any sense at all. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Thing is, you know, you've got to expect God to operate differently than the way we do. We ought to expect it. And actually, um, in one sense, this shouldn't have been too surprising. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here the Apostle Paul tells us how... Here the Apostle Paul tells us how God operates, right? Oops. Wrong Corinthians. By the way, can I tell you a secret about ministering from the pulpit? Is when you're in the pulpit and you tell people to turn somewhere, the books of the Bible in your Bible when you're up there, they jump around. They're not in the... Right, Ricky? You know what I'm talking about. They're not where they should be. All right. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I mean, that's what God always does. He always does it this way. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay? Now drop, drop down a little bit. Um, Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. All right, now, in one sense, they shouldn't have been surprised by this, because this is the way God always operates. He always operates contrary to the wisdom of men. Think about, um, think about, you see this pattern in the Old Testament all the time, right? So Jesus, you know, there's this one part in John, um, John chapter 5, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you were reading your Bibles, you would have seen me. And I used to, as a young person, I used to say, gee, I, I don't see you either, Jesus, in the Old Testament. I don't see you there. I don't get it. Well, when you look at it, um, there's, these, there's these patterns that keep recurring, right? Like um, Moses, the deliverer of Israel, came out of where? Well, no, when he came, when he showed up to be the deliverer, where was he coming from? Yeah, he was coming from nowhere, right? And you remember what, um, what one of the, oh, when, when he talks about Jesus uh, coming from Nazareth. Well, what good can come from Nazareth? King coming from Nazareth? The Na no it's like a LaRue, all right? It's like a LaRue, all right? Um, you see these recurring patterns. Um, Matthew draws it. He says, do you remember the, the Pharaoh? What did he try to do? He tried to kill all the male babies. So what happens with Jesus? Same thing, right? All these things, these recurring patterns. Like, here's one. David did not ascend to the throne until he had suffered years of humiliation, right? 
He was getting chased around in the desert. He had a bunch of outlaws, Robin Hood and his guys like in the desert, running around, doing all these things. Um, He suffered humiliation long before he ascended the throne. Um, The people were looking for Saul. What did they get? They got uh, somebody who wasn't very tall, was nothing like Saul, right? What were the people looking for when Jesus got, got there? They were looking for Saul, weren't they? Someone who was going to come and conquer their enemy. See, the point is, God always uses the things that confound human wisdom. And in one sense, they could have seen this coming. All right? They could have seen that coming because that's the way God has always operated. So anyway, here we are. It's a scandal. This Messiah, they can't imagine a king who's going to come to suffer humiliation, death. And then he mentions vindication. Resurrection, vindication as a means of his rule, as a means of gathering his people. That was just beyond their comprehension. But that's the way of our king, right? That's the way of our king. His glory is of a radically different nature than what we would expect. And so this is, the, this is our king. This is the kind of Messiah we have, one who's going to suffer, one who's going to... Um, go through humiliation before he's vindicated, before he ascends the throne. Now, don't lose this now, because that's what he says about his followers. Jesus leads a movement, but what kind of messianic movement? So, so let's continue then. Verse 34, and calling the crowd, and calling, yeah, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For, whatever is, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels." How are the followers of Messiah like their leader? All right? Now look at this. What kind of a leader do we have? He's one who's going to suffer humiliation, death, vindication. What are his followers going to be like? What do these verses tell you? Okay? It's your turn to talk. What are these verses saying about his followers? How so? How, How do you see that in these verses? Yeah. In the same yeah, in the same manner of humiliation, right? That, if that's the way our leader is, that's the way we're going to be, right? Okay? Um, and you know what? We still have a hard time seeing that. We still want parades and statues for us. Okay? If we stand for the word of God, man, the people around us are going to see us, they're going to respect us. Not so. Not so. So notice what he does. As Jesus leads a messianic movement of those who claim, and those who claim to be part of it have to, um, have to resemble their leader. Uh, Jesus suffered humiliation and death and then experiences vindication, so those who follow him must also experience humiliation. All right? Death and vindication. Um, these are not people who gain worldly treasure, position, or power. 
just as Jesus did not gain that kind of treasure. Now notice what he says here in verses 34 to 38. You've got to deny yourself, right? You have to deny what you want to do in order to do what Jesus wants you to do. You have to take up your cross. Now, we have, in our culture, to, we use that phrase, take up your cross, meaning carry a burden, all right? But that's not what it means. That's not what it meant to them. To take up your cross meant to be crucified. So when someone took up his cross, when you were, you're in a little village, you're in Arlington, and uh, at, let's just say the Romans are in charge, and someone has been, um, right? He's a criminal. What's going to happen? The lowest kind. What's going to happen to him? Well, they're gonna, he's going to take up this cross. He's going to walk down the street. You all are standing there watching him. He's got the cross on his back, and he's walking outside the village limits. What do you know about that guy? He's going to die. That's what you, when, when, when Jesus says, take up your cross, he means this. Crucify yourself. That's what he's talking about. You're taking a one-way trip. You're not coming back. You're dying. And so he's saying, deny yourself um, and then crucify self. My friend John Street calls it crucifying the criminal within you. I really like that, right? You crucify, um, you crucify yourself. Now, that does not mean that you deny yourself certain things or abstain from some particulars. That's not, that's not what, what it means. I mean, when we say deny self, we think it's talking about um, denying ourselves certain things, okay? Well, it's not. It's not denying. It's denying yourself. It's denying yourself. In fact, look at verse 35. Look at verse 35. Um, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will uh, and the Gospels will save it. Jesus puts it in terms of actually losing your life. Actually losing your life. So what does it mean for you each day? How do you deny yourself, kill yourself, and um, uh, how do you do that? Surely it involves, uh, and losing your life, surely it involves um, not doing what you want to do. You can't think in terms of immediate pleasure or those desires that war against what Jesus wants you to do, right? You've got to kill those sorts of things. You've got to kill those desires. Um, your life is no longer organized around what you want. You're saying that's pretty radical. You know, Jesus just won't be put in a box. It just, it's amazing. The things he says... And we kind of say, well, that doesn't mean that I have to give up everything I like. Well, no, it doesn't. But let's, why do we always run to that? Right? He says, you've got to organize your entire life around what I want. Right? You deny yourself. You kill yourself. You lose your life. And follow me. And all of that is, you've got to um, organize everything around what, what Jesus says. Like, um, okay, um, Let's say you work for, I don't know, like a, a big oil company. Uh, let's say Marathon, okay? And you have a desire to climb the ladder, all right? That's okay, all right. You want to move up. More money, all that, right? But, 
But what if that involves certain things that you know are wrong? What are you going to do, right? You've got to organize your work life around what Jesus says, right? Jesus says that you're a, you ought to be a slave to everyone. I want you to think about that. You have to be a slave to everyone. That's the greatest in the kingdom, the one who's a slave to everybody else. You ever tried to organize your life around that one? Right? What does that mean for me as a father? What does it mean for me as a pastor? What does it mean for me as a husband? What does it mean for me as a worker? All of that has to be organized around what Jesus says. There's one, right? So you follow what I'm saying? Jesus is saying now your entire life, everything in your life, your work, your play, your religious life, not just your religious life, every part of your life has to be organized around what I say. No longer what you desire, no longer what you think is the best. You have to go by what I think is the best. You have to do what, what I say is important, okay? Um. I mean, if you just take some time to think about that, you're going to see that Jesus is saying things that are absolutely, unbelievably radical. Okay? Um, Specifically, he says, you can't even let your desire for life organize your agenda. Not even your desire for life can organize your agenda. Why? Well, he says it may mean that you actually give up your life for Jesus' sake. You actually give up your life. All right, so if he means, this means you actually have to be willing to die for me, right? Then anything less than that also applies, right? Um, So denying yourself surely means that you no longer avoid humiliation, even death. It means that you no longer accumulate wealth for self living for the pleasure of the moment. Instead, you follow Jesus. All right? Now notice he offers a reward here. You know, Jesus is not gloom and doom. Jesus doesn't say, you know, to you, um, hey, deny yourself, crucify yourself, and follow me, you knucklehead. That's what life is about, so do it. What does he say? What does he say happens if you do that? You save your life. You actually save your life. And you get what? At the end. Reward. Okay? Now, he's not talking here about earning salvation. I mean, we know that. I don't, in this church, I don't think I have to tell, and I have to go to a long explanation about that. You all know that. Okay? But it does say that this is the kind of faith that is going to believe God, is going to believe the promises of God. You say, I'm going to gain everything. Okay, all right, then I'm willing to die. And there'll be a reward. Jesus says you will gain life by doing this. You will gain life by doing this. Um, The commendation of your master. So the people who are part of this great messianic movement have to lose their lives for Messiah like Messiah. All right, don't get over the don't don't skip over the fact that you got to crucify yourself, which is what Jesus did. Right? So we're going to lose our lives 
for Messiah and like him. Okay? If they lose their lives for him for the, and the gospel's sake, they'll in reality gain their lives. And that's true if Messiah's people are not ashamed of their humiliated, rejected Messiah. If you're not ashamed of him, then that's what you're going to do. That's the road he went. That's the road he expects you to follow. You're going to be like him. All right? Um, So I think you have to take an inventory. Um, You've got to ask yourself things like, am I denying myself and taking up my cross? Am I doing that? All right? Where, Where do I need to grow in that? Where am I not doing that? Where should I do it? Um, how can I do it? What's that going to look like? Right? By the way, I never, I never want to look at a passage of Scripture without asking this question. What's that going to look like? It's easy for us to pontificate about what the Bible says. But then you've got to ask, what's that going to look like? Okay, so I've got to deny self, crucify self, follow Jesus. What's that look like for me? Where am I not doing it? Where can I grow in it? Okay? Where am I not organizing my life around Jesus? What parts? And what am I going to do about it? (laughs) What specifically will I do about it then? Okay? Um, But this is not the common way that people think about Jesus. How do some people think following Jesus? What What do they think that means? Do you know anybody who doesn't think the same as you? <laughs> what do they typically think when they talk about when we talk about following Jesus or they mention it? Yeah, Ricky? Blessings, riches, lack of suffering. Yeah. Yeah, that's big in our culture, isn't it? Lack of suffering. I won't have to suffer, okay? Anything else? What else do you see? Prosperity you mentioned? That's big. Jacob? Well, it kind of goes along with prosperity, but just liberalism in general, um, having a wrong definition of love, yeah. and thinking of following Jesus by uh, just loving, loving worldly things and worldly pleasures. Yeah. yeah. Jesus is there to give me what I want. Jesus is there to make me the person I want to be. All right? Ricky? Yeah, toleration is, is uh, or acceptance is considered loving, right? Love untethered to the truth. Yeah. Um, sometimes, sometimes people think, think of Jesus as merely an example, but not Jesus as crucified. Yeah, me. yeah. So that... Sure, I want to follow Jesus like this, but denying myself means that I must see myself as crucified on, on the cross of Christ as well. Not just needing an example, but truly needing death. Okay? Yeah. Good. Good. Okay? These are all good. And we're starting to live in a culture where, um, and I, you know, these are times when I hope I'm terribly wrong. But I think we're approaching a time in our culture where we are going to um, pay the price for being Christians. Um, I don't, you know, 
I don't foresee us dying right off, but right now we're already being marginalized. Right now we are... <laughs> you know when they talk about all these people who are marginalized? We're the ones who are getting marginalized. I don't know if you've noticed. Um, but who knows? Are you going to be willing to say, well, if that's the requirements to be a doctor, I have to affirm that I'll do abortions, then I won't be a doctor. I'm going to give up all that comes with being a doctor, right? And I'm just going to be a guy who, you know, labors in the mines. Uh, things like that. We may have to face that, and we ought to be ready to do it because Jesus has told us what we're supposed to be like, right? And so that's what we need to do. So you find out, here's Jesus. He's radically different in terms of his rule. He's going to rule and gather a people by means that kings don't do it. He's going he's to suffer humiliation. He's going to die. He's going to be vindicated. Well, what are we going to be like who follow him? We're going to have to get used to the idea of suffering. We've got to, um, we got, we got to be ready to be humiliated, even give up our own lives in order to gain life, right? And that's what we're going to have to be like. Now he goes on, Jesus has authority, but what kind of authority? Okay? That's in the next section from chapter 9, verse 1, um, through verse 13. Here's the transfiguration. Now, Moses and Elijah represent what? Have you ever thought about this? What does Moses and Elijah represent? Or what do they represent, Ricky? The law, the, the law and the prophets, okay? I think that's clearly what's going on here. What does this messianic movement involve? It means that its leader has full authority. When am I supposed to be done with Sunday school class? Uh, quarter after. Quarter after. Well, I try to be careful about that. All right. Okay. So instead of reading through that, you all know the transfiguration. You know, Peter starts babbling about erecting these tabernacles or whatever. I think he was just so blown away, he didn't know what to say. <laughs> you know, I need to dive into that more, I think. I, it's just really weird. Um, so even though a Messiah has to die and be raised, he has ultimate authority. I think that's what the Mount of Transfiguration is about. Okay? So... Peter and the other two apostles see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah conversing with one another. Now, I'm just going to throw this out. I'm not going to give you any answers, which is probably never the right thing to do from a pulpit or when you're teaching. But it appears that they know Jesus. And I don't know how that is unless they knew him before his incarnation. If they knew him, if he'd revealed himself to them, I don't know. But, but they act like they know him. All right? And that's, that's neither here. That's just a throwaway, okay? You think about it, and when you come up with the answer to that, send me the email, all right? But what is of utmost importance in this whole thing is what God the Father says. He says, this is my son whom I love. What? Listen to him. Now, I think that's really, really important. As important as the law is and the prophets are, Jesus is the one to whom we have to pay particular attention. He's the one who commands. He's the one who gives us the final word from God. The final word. Okay? That's what Hebrews 1 says. God's finally revealed himself in his son. He's the final word from God. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore the Old Testament. 
Okay, listen to me now. It doesn't mean we ignore the Old Testament. It's God's Word. But we have to listen to Jesus first before we go there. We've got to listen to Jesus first. In fact, I would go so far as to say that we have to understand the Old Testament through him. Um, we can't ignore the Old Testament since it's a word from God, but we have to see them through the lenses of Jesus' per- per- person, teaching, and commandments. We have to see them through that lens. Okay? Listen to him. So, um, we go first to Jesus. Jesus is the final word. Jesus is the fulfillment. He supersedes and fulfills the law and the prophets. Okay? Now, that's important theologically, but we're asking this question then. What does it mean experientially for me? What does that look like? Okay? That's the question you need to ask. If God says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him, how then do I do that? What's that going to look like? Now, theologically, I know he takes precedence. I have to look at the old through Jesus, right? He's, he fulfills all of that. So, um, so what's that going to look like for me, right? What will that look like? It surely means that I have to know Christ, his teachings, and his commandments as a direct rule of my life. Everything that Jesus commands me. I need to know that. I need to put an emphasis on that. I need to say, do I really seek to organize my life around what Jesus says? That's real important for us. Um, I've got to know Jesus and what he teaches really well. And isn't that what Jesus told us to do? In the Great Commission. We're told to that disciples are baptized people who, um, who what? What's the next thing he says? Teaching them to what? Yeah. You know, that's good. A. A for you, Ricky. Because most people say, most people would say to me, when I ask that question, I, I always do this. When I ask that question, people say, yeah, we're, he says, go teach them all the things that I've commanded. And that's not what it says. It says, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. Now, think about that. There's a difference, right? My, my teaching should be aimed at change in the people that are listening. Preach, all my preaching and teaching has to be aimed at changing people. Our church exists for the purpose of change, that people will be changing, that people will grow more and more obedient to what Jesus has commanded. I think that's a real important thing, because you know what? I'll be honest with you. We, we people of the Reformed persuasion can really think we're mature and we got it together, because we really know our theology. And that's not true. That's not true. Jesus says, I want you not just to know it, I want you to obey it. You have to obey it. So we have to listen to Jesus, and we have to organize our lives around him. We got it right theologically, but we've always got to take the next step. What does it mean experientially? How does that, how is that going to work out in my life? All right? Okay. Um, the next section, verses 14 through 32. 
is the, the story of the man who comes. They come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. The man has a son. He has these fits. He even throws himself into fires. Um, and, and he says, Jesus, your disciples couldn't do it. Will you do it? And Jesus sighs and says, you know, a crooked, perverse generation is always looking for signs. And then he heals the boy. Okay. Um, he heals the boy. And then he says, everything is possible for him who believes. What is that all about? And then he tells his disciples, it's only by prayer that you get this done. All right? This is, that's a really tough one. So I'm glad we don't have too much time. I'm just going to skim over it really fast. I'm going to skim over it really fast, okay? What's Jesus about? Um, I think when you look at verse 25, Jesus is healing the boy before the crowd gets there. They're all... They all see him, and they're coming, and so he heals the boy before they get there. And at first glance, it might, see, it might seem that Jesus says anything is possible for him who believes in miracles. But I don't think that's what he's saying. Um, instead, he seems to say everything is possible for one who believes in Jesus. They wanted signs, prove your Messiah. Jesus responds that everything is possible for those who believe that Jesus is who he says and what he can do. And the Messiah is not about signs. The Messiah is about faith. So when he talks to the disciples, by the way, who have, um, who have just come back, if you look at Mark 6, uh, Jesus had given them the power to do this to cast out demons and stuff, right? And he says to them, listen, you've got to pray. What's he trying to communicate? This is what I think he's doing here. I think, you know, like a lot of us, uh, the disciples um, got, gave in to the magical way of thinking. Oh, Jesus gave us this power. We can do anything, right? And Jesus is saying it's not about your power. Jesus, not our powers, even powers given to us by Christ, Jesus has to be our resting place, not, not the power that I have, right? They couldn't get it done. Well, didn't Jesus give them the power? Yeah, but they weren't praying about it. And I think Jesus' point is that our faith is in him, okay? It's about putting our faith in him. It's about showing our utter dependence upon him. Not our abilities, not any of that. Even though you may be good at something, okay? Even though you may be good about something, you still got to do it in dependence upon God. And we ought to expect Jesus to do great things. All right? And then he ends up with what? What's the last thing he talks about? The other, the other bookend, the other bracket. He talks about his death again, okay? So, I know we skipped over some of it really fast, but I hope you get the idea here. What is Messiah? What are his followers like? What's his authority like? What should we expect him to do? What is all that about? And it centers around the fact that glory and power do not come first through exaltation. Glory and power come through humiliation and death. That's true for him. That's true for us. And this upside-down Messiah is still, right? He's still the ultimate authority. He dies, he's humiliated, he's vindicated. Because of that, he has ultimate authority. And then above all, we have to understand life and ministry from that upside-down perspective. Okay? So we ought to be thinking, right? Um, 
I like what Paul Tripp said one time. Um, I wrote it in my, my other Bible. That um, God is not hindered by our weakness. He's hindered by our delusions of strength. Okay? We, we think God's going to work when I'm confident and I can get the job done. And he's saying, no. It's when you know that you're weak is when God works. Right? So we need to remember that. Because the, the Messiah himself operated from weakness. Right? Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity of looking into your word. We're thankful for the word of God which is sufficient to tell us how we ought to live, how we ought to think, how we ought to understand everything. Thank you that we had the opportunity to look at that. We pray in the next hour that you would indeed um, use your spirit, uh, that your spirit would be useful in bringing the word of God to us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.